Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. My name's Edith. I'm an alcoholic. Hey, it's really a privilege to be here. And what she didn't tell you is, Annie came over, and she was in some distress. And where is she? Where's Annie? Yeah, okay. But she was totally diplomatic. She said, Terry, Edith's in Cleveland. Her paralegal booked a flight wrong, and she's not going to be here until we get some kind of arrangements. I mean, totally diplomatic. And then my, my sidekick says, well, isn't that stupid that that she... We told her she was supposed to be in Columbus, so Terry was waiting for some, elicit some response, and your, you know, your committee chairperson was totally diplomatic, didn't get upset, didn't cuss me out, didn't know I was sitting there. (laughs) So then, I didn't have the heart. See, I love this stuff. I love this chaos. My daddy, I was... I was raised in a family where my father's job in our community and surrounding communities was when people were getting married, he and two of his low-class Confederates would go and take the bride. They'd handcuff themselves to the bride and they'd take her out on our boat or take her in a plane that one of my daddy's friends had, and they'd miss their honeymoon. I mean, this was notorious around <laughs> Alabama. We got two of my friends here from Alabama, but my father has uh, has talked to the police where they're looking for my father, didn't know it was him, and because he had taken the limousine, you know, uh, uh landed it in a, a body of water, and so he's back at the country club or wherever the reception was, and he's kept talking to the police about some guy he saw driving that limousine off. So I come from a, I come from this genetically, see? So I always appreciate having somebody who, who'll be right there in it with me, okay? Because we're talking about you coming into Alcoholics Anonymous not to have a life that's going to be gray and uh, and you know, uh, uh, difficult. It's going to be difficult, but you're going to be difficult and enjoy. And there's going to be a great deal of joy and a great deal of fun. You know, I, I'm, uh, I, again, I'm so privileged to be here in Columbus. I've been here before and I loved it. And Miss Martin is in recovery. And immediately before coming up here tonight, I was, uh, texting, uh, back and forth to Omaha and I said, well, the good news is, the bar is so low because they invited Dave F. from Omaha <laughs> in advance of me that maybe I can carry the water. Um, but I, I, you know, I'm a I'm a low class substitute for for her, and she's a, a, a well thought of member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and many of you I know have some kind of sponsorship lineage to her, but. I'll just give you one short note about her. On her 40th birthday, and David will know this as well as uh, the gentleman who's doing your taping, Kenny, and uh, she came up to the podium, and she was, you know, she's in her, uh, probably then in her 70s, and her birthday, her sobriety birthday of 40 years, she had spent in the hospital with a woman 
who had hepatitis and was jaundiced and was dying. And she was reporting to us what the woman said, which had a, a few uh, details of profanity in it. I don't know if David remembers this, but she was telling us what she said. And I remember her repeating it with exactitude and then going, oops, <laughs> from the podium. The point I'm trying to make here is she's carrying the message in her late 70s when she could have said, hey, all these women I sponsor can come around and take me out to dinner, and I'll uh, have a, a little bit of a nice time tonight when I announce my 40-year anniversary. But she was at the University of Nebraska Medical Center scrapping around with another drunk. And uh, that's, you know, that's the beauty of Alcoholics Anonymous is we're, we're in a chain-link fence. Uh, I'm in a chain-link fence with sponsorship. I'm in a chain-link fence with you because... To the woman right there in the in the just same color. What color is this? Pink. Danielle, who had four days, and the gentleman who had one day, and all these cats from the House of Hope. Congratulations to the House of Hope. That's what we're telling you. It, you can't do this alone. If you still got if you still got a plan, you're in trouble. <laughs> okay, lose the plan, baby. Okay, so uh, I, I'm not a good joke teller, but I just did want to start out with a joke. I'm a grapevine devotee, and uh, thanks to a loving God and the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous uh, and sponsorship both ways, I haven't had a drink since the first day of June 1987, and for that I'm very grateful. <laughs> So some of my old friends here, uh, Kelly, Carol, they may have heard this before, but I'm going to read it to you. So I always take the grapevine when I go out of the country and see if they have a, 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 a counter magazine. Uh, and, uh, and I've, as I said, been a subscriber, so I would ask you to support the grapevine. In the entire state of Nebraska, we only have 500 subscribers uh, even in the 50s, I believe they had a $40,000 40, member subscription rate, if I remember that from reading it in Language of the Heart. So um, I think it's a magazine well worth your, your underwriting. Words that are difficult to say when drunk. Innovative. <laughs> preliminary. <laughs> proliferation. <laughs> cinnamon. Words that are very difficult to say when you're drunk. Specificity. <laughs> Anti-constitutionality. <laughs> Passive-aggressive disorder. <laughs> and for all you Catholics out there, transubstantiate. <laughs> Words that are impossible to say when you're drunk. No thanks, I'm married. <laughs> No, I can't have any more booze. <laughs> Sorry, but you're really not my type. <laughs> no, thanks. I'm not interested in fighting you. <laughs> I won't make any further attempts to dance. <laughs> I will. I will dance tonight. Oh no, I've got to be going home because I have to go to work in the morning. 
I used to work in a, a assembly line back there in Alabama, my home, Decatur, North Alabama. And uh, we put uh, lunches together for underprivileged children, and then we drove them out to parks that were federally designated and delivered them. And uh, we and I'd go to work straight from the river. I'd be stay out on the river. We had a crummy boat. My daddy allowed me, the oldest, to to. Uh, I had first opportunity, and then my brothers were behind me. But I'd uh, be out on the river. I had long hair back then. And I wouldn't take a bath, come in to work at, uh, on the assembly line. And, uh, after having stayed up all night and, you know, smoke a couple of joints and then we'd head out to the, meet all these children who were counting on us to feed them. <laughs> and, uh, so, so I never had in my vocabulary the idea of, no, I've got to go home, because uh, <laughs> I have to work in the morning. That was that was just something. I was on a continuum. You know what I mean. <laughs> I I haven't been uh, had the privilege of hearing all your speakers, but I, I I'm, I'm giving a lot of hell to to Forrell and uh, or to Dave. Excuse me for using your last name. <laughs> but he he is on a he's not on he's no longer on the uh, uh, protected witness program. <laughs> <laughs> but uh and he does a he he works with a lot of guys back there in Omaha. Uh but I haven't had the opportunity to hear everyone. Uh but I, I know that you've been in good stead. So uh the standards are getting lowered right now. <laughs> but I did hear Ed, and I don't know if Ed's here, and, and I did write down a couple of things he said which I really thought were important, and one of them was there was a God conspiracy. And I appreciated that because the idea, I, I, I didn't know that there was anything uh, stronger than me that uh, was going to be of good assistance to me. And I did write that down, uh, a God conspiracy, because that's kind of what happened to me. There was a, I thought it was conspiratorial or didn't quite understand it. And that's all right because it was a positive conspiracy. Uh, and my upbringing, as I said, was in Alabama. And I had a, a father who drank every day. He was a World War II veteran. And uh, all my daddy's life, he was uh, drank every day that I knew him. I don't know that he qualified as an alcoholic. Um, things didn't happen to him like they happened to me uh, when I started drinking. You know, there's there's uh, people who, who might have a uh, serious event in their life, and they quit drinking. One of my partners did in, in my business. He had a bad time in college, and he doesn't drink. <laughs> you know, he told his roommate and the, that he lived with a man and a woman. I know them both. They're both in the legal community back there where we live. And they, they didn't, uh, he doesn't drink anymore. I know his family. Uh, I've been to baptisms for his grandchildren and his children's weddings, and he doesn't drink. Just decided it wasn't a good idea. And then there are people who might have a, a weaning off of alcohol because they're having a medical procedure or they found that it's they've become dependent on it and they and then they stop drinking after this this uh maybe medically overseen uh you know series of uh uh events and and then there're people like me and I can't quit drinking when I start drinking I can't quit drinking and I I end up in uh, a lot of uh you know disparate places it's always hard when you wake up and you look outside and you're not familiar with any of the street signs or the person with you 
And and you also notice that you are in someone else's clothes. And so when 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 that when those outcomes start uh having some repetition, uh, you know, I was you would think that I would draw the conclusion that drinking might be something I would quit. I didn't. I didn't. So I'm growing up in Alabama, and uh, my mother is my father's junior by 12 years. She grew up in abject poverty. Uh, and my daddy had a different upbringing with a little, not affluent, but a little more than my mama had. And he, as I said, had been to World War II. He volunteered. My father at 17 volunteered. My grandparents had to underwrite his um, um, uh, I, I'm not sure he wouldn't, I wouldn't call it conscription, but they had to underwrite him uh, entering the Navy. And he was sworn in on December 7th, 1942 at Pearl Harbor. So one year exactly after uh, what happened in Pearl Harbor. And, um, and he seemed to understand me a little better than my mother. Okay. My mother was so kind and dear. And so when you've got a daughter like me who's belligerent, and at 12 years old I had the park rangers bring me home because I had cussed them out because they had tried to disband our group of, you know, up-and-coming uh, uh, ne'er-do-wells, okay? So <laughs> we were out on, out on this, you know, forestry property, and I remember talking back to them and them saying, You're, we're going to go take you, we came to arrest you for... For cussing us, but we're taking you to your parents. And I remember my father saying, you're going to put on a dress and we're going down there and you're going to apologize to the forestry rangers. And uh, I remember thinking, I'm not going to. But I did. But as time passed, I talked back to a lot of people because I thought I was a big shot. Okay? That permeates my life still today. Ego, ego, ego. You know? I was in a courtroom um, about four or five years ago, and this guy who I do not like, who I'd been litigating against for about four years, and had uh, I had him on the stand, and I said, and uh, I brought in 12 expert witnesses to substantiate a coin collection and a real estate appraisal and a um, uh, retirement records from a municipality in our town. I said I spent thousands of dollars on behalf of my client because you wouldn't uh, you wouldn't waive any of these objections. And the guy says, "My lawyer told me I didn't have to do a damn thing that you said I that you would ask of us." And I said, "Well, you and your lawyer are a perfect group." I said, "I'm not surprised y'all found each other." And the judge, who I've known for many years, leaned over and he said. Uh, Edith, I think you've gone too far. <laughs> Why am I telling you that story? Because I still got that ego, see? And it's still got to get peeled down, which is what the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous are about. But that's the way I operate, because I want you to know I'm important, okay? You're not going to talk to me that way. Besides that, I don't like that guy. So I want to, I want him to get diminished. But what happened in that in that particular landscape is I'm an officer of the court. I have a higher standard that I'm supposed to keep. And the other piece of this is that judge knows that I'm an Alcoholics Anonymous. So I am speaking for all of you. 
when I undermine what I'm supposed to be doing, which is acting with integrity, acting with dignity, no matter what's happening on the other side of things. And so the next morning, after praying a lot, calling my sponsor is a last idea. (laughs) I had to go into that open courtroom and make an apology. And I'm telling you, that is something I did not want to do. But I did it for one reason, because my relationship with God is more important than the uh, outside um, management of my image. And uh, it's it happens to me over and over, which is something else I need to report. Uh, but I was, I, you know, I'm growing up in Alabama, and, uh, and I'm belligerent and I'm drinking. Now, my daddy had a Luca cabinet because our town, um, as my friends know, Corey and Kent, uh, back then, uh, I'm 56 years old, so back then in the 60s and the 70s, it uh, was all dry. And all the bootleggers and all the uh, Baptists, no offense if anybody's back. <laughs> anyway, when the referendums would come down, maybe they'd vote it. They'd vote for uh, alcohol-free, you know, uh, zones. And, of course, the bootleggers dug it because they made a lot of coin. And you can go to a bootleggers, uh, you know, any time, day or night. Maybe some of you grew up in dry counties like that. But if you like this guy, he he looks like it, doesn't he? Where or where are you from, Appalachia? Uh, so he, you know, you you drive up and they don't know you. By the way, Appalachia is beautiful. So let me just comment, make that comment. But if they don't know you, then they just shoot out your tires. You know, you got to have a relationship with the bootlegger. Uh, and and I did because I had a friend named Jane and her sister knew the bootlegging and uh, uh, these two brothers that had a bootlegging business. And so I could get alcohol. My daddy kept it in a big cabinet. We had a liquor cabinet, you know. And so uh, uh, I'd get in there and steal it. So did my mama, see. So my mother had started drinking. And uh, believe me, I wasn't a force of any peace within our household. But my mother... Uh, was drinking, and so was I. My daddy wasn't sure who was the thief, but he was, he would, you know, see the mark in the bottles and things like that. And, uh, and I, at, at a very early age, liked drinking. And I think most of that's like, uh, other alcoholics might comment, which is, it was, uh, absolutely what made me feel like I was able to have a good conversation with you able to have a be in community with you because I wasn't. You know, I heard Johnny Harris talking when I was very young, and he said, uh, uh, I was never in unity. And that was absolutely, I got that. I was never in unity. When you come in here, what we're talking about is getting you in unity, which means that you are me and I am you, and we are all part of a system that is a network that has a, Movement, and I'm sure scientifically definable force. If you're ever in prayer in an international convention with 50 to 60 other thousand alcoholics, you know what I'm talking about. There is a an ability here for us to help each other 
to a degree that gets us out of ourselves and also helps us to move out of what's been so familiar. Okay, so what's so familiar to the guy in the green shirt? We're going to tell you, you can get, you can move away from that. And it may be scary. It may have some frightening attributes right now, but I'm just telling you, jump off, try it. Okay? I shouldn't have said jump off in light of Danielle. Is she here? <laughs> Danielle happened to jump off of something very high and survive. Okay? So, so what I'm saying is you gotta take a risk, baby. You gotta get out there and try. Okay? The third step is about taking some action. Okay? It isn't about just standing here and saying it's God's will. Get out there and do it. Go take the risk. Okay? I've, you know, I've got a, uh, um, I'm one of those people who's got the adrenaline. Need it, need it, need it, you know. So we have a friend, these Omahans, who races cars, and so I used to be his, uh, sidekick, you know, I'd, I'd be his, I'd look at the markers and tell him whether we needed to, uh, speed up or slow down. But when you're going 170 miles an hour down the, uh, uh, highway in, uh, in Nevada, you're in the moment, okay? <laughs> So what's going to happen to you in Alcoholics Anonymous is you're going to get in the moment. You're going to have the ability to be present. You're going to be out of that idea that the past has been monumentally terrible and the future is exponentially scary, and you're going to be right here, right now. That's what we're talking about. Be right here. Be present. Be right here, right now. Ram Dass said that. Uh, I'm wearing this bracelet because I have been in Asia, and uh, it was a great privilege to travel through uh, Asia, Singapore, Malaysia. I went to Vietnam on my birthday, February 24th of this year. I was standing in S21, which is a detention center, which uh, the Viet Cong uh, ferried people through, um, who were all going eventually to be uh and their lives were going to be ended in the killing fields, and uh, what a privilege. But throughout that entire time, two things happened. Many things happened. Uh, I went on into Thailand and Cambodia, of course, which is where where the killing fields are, um, Phnom Penh. And, uh, but I met many, many Buddhist monks who were all very peaceful, and, uh, you know, I went into a lot of Buddhist temples with um, some villagers and, and worshipped with them. And, uh, and the one thing that I always knew is every time I was in front of a monk, which you're not to touch, you know, they, they're very careful about, uh, you know, their, their space and some kind of wrong reaction that might be uh, received. But they are, uh, they're right there. They're right there in that prayer. Every one of them that gave me a prayer, every every monk that I had the, the great privilege to pray with was right there. Um, and the other thing that happened to me is, like you already know, I'm in Bangkok. I get on the phone. I find the AA meeting. Now this is so easy. You know, this wasn't easy in the 80s. Uh, in the 80s, I'm in Scotland, and I call the international office, and they say, well, we'll send a man round, and he'll be at the People's Hydra Hotel, and he'll be whistling. 
and he won't he won't be he won't he won't be uh, he won't be identified, but he'll be whistling. And uh, so I go and meet Ernie, and he takes me to a meeting in Edinburgh, which is an hour's drive from where I am. We get home at midnight, uh, but but that's that's the power of Alcoholics Anonymous. Okay, this guy drove as redundant, which means he was uh, on Social Security. His stomach mostly had been removed, and he was willing to come and get me, take me to a meeting. Uh, we go into Edinburgh. We come. We uh, takes me all the way home. I remember my daddy and all my cousins who'd been drinking scotch nonstop on this trip to Scotland to our home, Peebles. We went to Peebles, Scotland, my last name. Uh, and my father's saying to me, hey, where are you going? I said, I don't know. When are you coming back? I don't know. Who are you going with? I don't know. <laughs> but he's going to be down here whistling. <laughs> I still have Ernie's card at my home in Omaha. It says, call me before, not after, even if you have to call over the pond. So I'm in Bangkok last month, and I get on the phone. How easy is this? And I get on the Internet, and I call Richard. And Richard says, all right, because everybody in Bangkok rides motorcycles, as you may know, two-thirds of the population. So everybody's on motorcycle. So, so Richard says, well, I'm taking a motorcycle taxi, and a lot of people walk to the meeting. And so the good news is I have the great privilege of, going to a meeting in Bangkok, and uh, there are people just like your committee members who I'm very thankful for who have everything set up in advance in the hospital where the meeting is. And there I am with you in community uh, on the other side, uh, you know, underneath uh, where we are right now on the other side of the world. So you are a citizen of the world in Alcoholics Anonymous. You can count on that, absolutely, wherever you go. Uh, I'm going to tell you one more thing about traveling because this was something that I needed and didn't expect, but I was in in the South Pole a year ago, and I was getting desperate because the ride to this, uh, to Antarctica, I thought I was pretty sturdy, you know, because I was on boats all my upbringing, skiing. Uh, My daddy was a WSI instructor. All of us, pools, rivers, oceans, all of us are swimmers. I'm a scuba diver. I was so sick, you know, with these waves because, of course, Antarctica is, there's no landmass. And if you've read anything about Shackleton, you know, the, the seriousness of trying to get to that particular continent in the early 1900s was almost insurmountable, but he did it along with Amundsen and and, uh, another famous explorer from England. Um, But I was very, very sick, and everybody on this boat was drinking, uh, including my husband, Um, which was okay. They all could drink. but I, I stayed in my room for about two days because of, uh, you know, the waves are 40 and 50 feet high. And, uh, and I finally got up, uh, the stamina to go to the, 
concierge, the head, you know, the it was a French team who was uh, kind of commandeering this boat. That sounded like they were pirates. They weren't. We had, they had started out with us, uh, but we. So so I go to the woman and I said, um, I said I I'm a member of a, a, a fellowship and we don't drink. And I said, if there's anybody else on this boat that we can find, I'd like to have a meeting and I'll take responsibility for it. If you can print it in our updated notices. On a day, on the daily basis, and tell me where and when it might be convenient. I'll take responsibility for the meeting. And this precious French girl says, "Mademoiselle, I've got the woman. I've got the woman for you. She told me come in here immediately. Get all this liquor out of my room. Take it out of this mini bar and hurry up about it." And she's laid out. She was laid up on the bed crying. And I said, "There's my girl." So the woman doesn't tell me, the the head of the boat doesn't tell me who this is, but she tells me that she will give me this date and time, and we're to meet on the boat at a lower level. And uh, I'm down there waiting with my book, and uh, and who walks in but the, the gal who had asked that her room be cleared, who was a physician from Missouri. Uh, and then, so she and I have a meeting, uh, I have a garbage can there because I'm I'm not still not in good stead, and uh, and we have a meeting, we have another meeting on that ship, and another man shows up from New York City. Why am I telling you that story? Because Alcoholics Anonymous is alive and well in Antarctica, <laughs> and 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 if you are willing to. Uh, ask for some help, which I did. I prayed every day, of course, as I do. I do. That's a, that's a, that's a practice of mine. I do have that discipline. I'm, I'm not as good at meditation, but I am a, I am a practice. Uh, I, I have a practice of prayer, and I believe that the uh, repetition is the mother skill because I can tell you right now some of those prayers are to believe again. I, I, sometimes I, I think I, I run my life in a fashion that would be considered by you to be totally uh, self-run. And so I need to get down on my knees. I need to become reverential, and I need to remember that I'm praying again to believe. And so um, having that having that mother skill of repetition pays off for a, for somebody who still is drenched in ego like me. And uh, so back in Alabama, have you got that now? We're moving about, you know, I'm 40 years the other way now. You got it? You got it? Uh, I had a great time drinking. I love the River Club. I love places where there's no flooring. And, And people have got their guns on the table. And you can wear your bathing suit. That is always handy because you don't have time to get dressed, you know, always. And uh, so, uh, the and the River Club is the kind of place where they play Hank Williams, not Hank Williams Jr. Okay, and that's what I liked. That's where I like going. That's where I was drinking. I had a lot of trouble even in high school, and I was getting arrested, and. Uh, um, 
I had a good lawyer. And uh, my daddy had stopped coming and getting me. And when your daddy and your mama don't come and get you, you got to have some other uh, individual on whom you're relying, okay? So I dated a guy who was older than I was, and that that's the way you got to consider things. Does he own land? Can he sign the bond? You know, who's going who's gonna to be helping you out? You know what I mean? My great auntie, who had my name, Edith, was very anxious. So she always had all the gnaws. You know, this is Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm mindful of that. But I always kept two and on, second on, and nebutal in my pockets. Because when I, you know why? Because when I started drinking, I always started driving. Motorcycles. Just a, you know, not not the high-class gear that some of you guys drive, but my brother had a small bike. Boats. Cars. And I had accidents in all of them. And when I was 17, I was in a, a pretty significant car accident. And Jane and I, my old running buddy, had been out to the plush horse. And this is a place that uh, deserves some mention. Because uh, <laughs> it was, uh, you know, there were a lot of lights. And uh, back then, when I was 16 and 17, I had a jumpsuit. You know what I mean? One piece, one piece jumpsuit, zipped up the back, very difficult to pee in, <laughs> especially when you were outside. She had to take it off and then be on, on the side of the road. But there was a lot of disco music back then, and uh, I loved it, loved going to the plush horse. Jane and I had been to the, at the plush horse all uh, and we'd been uh, drinking all day, night, and uh, we got out of her Volkswagen Rabbit, remember those cars, and got into my Pontiac Bonneville. Now, this was a, a sweet ride, green gold top. I'd gotten it when I was 16. My daddy had bought it for me. I really liked it. And uh, we were going back out to Trinity Mountain where Jane lived, and uh, and Jane had just gotten out of a full plaster body cast uh, from a from a car accident drinking, and so she was walking for the first time in probably nine months. And she and I had been drinking, and we got in my car, and we're driving out to Triana where she lives, or uh, Trinity. Uh, Triana is where the bootlegger was, uh, which was always handy because Marveline. Uh, you just pull up to her place, and and even on Sundays, and she'd come out, and I was buying cases of Schlitz for a uh, for six dollars, and she's now the mayor of Triana. <laughs> that kind of that kind of background's handy in Alabama. <laughs> anyway, Jane and I are driving out to Trinity, where she's from, and uh, and the and I'm the driver. And we're hit by a train. And uh, the reason I'm telling you this story is uh, that I get to. <laughs> I get to tell this story uh, because I survived. Uh, but I, uh, I, you know, I, don't, I can't tell you the events because I don't remember them. But uh, the, the uh, uh, car was mangled up, par partially 
integrated in the train and finally fell off into a ravine and a woman going to her job, which would have been probably the first shift of a nursing uh, regime, found us. She was a nurse. And um, so she got us uh, immediate uh, emergency EMC treatment. And um, Jane had a pretty significant head injury, and the windshield had gone through my throat. And if you are close up with me, you can see I have a scar all around my throat. Uh, but we were, I was in the hospital for, I was in a coma. Um, <clears throat> so I woke up and saw my, my, a guy I'd been going out with and my daddy. And I didn't know why I was in the hospital, but I couldn't talk. And I saw the man that had been dating me and he was t- in tears. And so I didn't, I, you know, wasn't quite focusing on what had happened. But the end of this story is I had respiratory therapy for about a month, and I uh, had, uh, during this time, started engaging people to bring me liquor up at the, up at the uh, hospital. So that was, uh, that was how far I thought in contemplation about whether or not I should quit drinking. I was drinking while I was still in the hospital. And that's to be the story of what happened to me. I went on to the University of Auburn. Why? My father and mother had kicked me out out of their home. I'd been working on a dairy farm with Jane. Jane's tougher than me. I thought I'd rather get an education, okay? If you're a dairy farmer, then I'm going to say to you, okay, because I was... I, I'm not that I'm not that sturdy, baby. And uh, so I went back to school, got in, went to Auburn. Uh, didn't have a driver's license back in Alabama. They impounded your tags, and I had uh, DUIs, so they'd taken my tags off my car. That didn't happen when I moved to Nebraska. And I remember my early sobriety under a DUI probationary status, saying to my uh, my sponsor right after I got sober. She said, how'd you get here? And I said, well, I drove. And she said, "Uh, well, I thought your license was suspended. I said, it is, but they don't know that because they didn't come take my tags. (laughs) (laughs) So what's wrong with that? (laughs) You know what I mean? And she said to me, you know, here we're we're a program of honesty. And so what we expect of you is that you're not going to be a chipper. Uh, you're going to tell the truth. You're not going to take the angle shooting route. And if you're not going to be transparent, you're probably not going to stay sober. And uh, boy, did I learn my lesson. But back in, in Alabama, they took your tags off. The only guy that would pick me up to get into the town of Auburn to go to school was the garbage man. The city garbage man, he'd pick me up. And I was drinking every day. I drank gin back then. And uh, I was sick. And uh, I was doing a lot of other things. And, uh, you know, a couple of officers had come over to my home and begged me to, to uh, take some different actions because they, uh, they knew the town I was from, and one of them was dating a, a gal I knew from, our, uh, from my hometown. And so they'd taken their time out, and I threw them out of my house, you know, because the guys that I ran with uh, uh, were in trouble, and this police officer knew about them too, Scott and Perry. Okay, these were my guys I'd grown up with. And I was in love with Scott. Both of them are dead. 
Both of them died as a result of drugs and alcohol. My daddy, when I was 17, said, you and Scott and Perry are all going to be dead or in jail for you, 21. Both of them were. Both of them were in jail, in prison, before we were 21. And just because of seconds and inches, I wasn't with them because I was going to be with them, but I wasn't with them. My father later in his years uh, after his second wife died was asking me to look over some of his materials because by then I'd graduated from law school. And I said, Daddy, you sure got a lot of life insurance here. And he said, well, uh, if you look through those policies, three of them are on your life. <laughs> All right. So he was, he was counting on winning that bet. So at Auburn, uh, you know how your birthday starts up and it goes on for a week. <laughs> and that's, I was having a birthday party, you know. And I'd been drinking and I'd been for a week. And, uh, and so they, they come to see me, you know, after I'd told those police officers, get out of my house. They, they came back. Uh, but they come in, you know, and they got these no-knock warrants and they don't have to have an invitation. So they kick the doors in. And uh, and they got everybody down on the ground with, uh, uh, you know, guns to their head. And I'm thinking the best the best idea I could come up with was to climb out the back window. And uh, and I had a, a safety deposit box that was valuable, <laughs> so I had that with me. And uh, and I could hear I could hear that officer Bart was his first name, and he said, Edith, get back in the house. The house is surrounded. <laughs> and get dressed. <laughs> I had a real problem with getting dressed. Terry and I were talking about this today. I used to go down to Harry's where I drank in my bathrobe because <laughs> I didn't have time to get dressed. And I was important, and I needed to start drinking. And Harry's didn't have any flooring. They serve beer and pig's feet, and that's the kind of place I like to be, you know. And so, uh, anyway, so I'm I'm in a little more trouble now than these other, you know, n nights of two in jail, and I I end up in front of a judge in uh, Lee County, and he gives me a five year prison sentence to uh, Juliet Tutwiler uh, Prison, women's prison in Tuskegee, Alabama, and. Uh, Famous and and uh, uh, just superlative uh, group from there that you may have heard of, uh, Tuskegee Air Fighters. Uh, the I have a photo of them, very famous from World War II. Um, so that's where I was going to go do the time. My father brought a man who had been to Korea with the judge to my to my trial, and they go back there. The prosecutor, my my father, this gentleman, my lawyer. And they come back out, and they say, and the, my lawyer says he's going to suspend it. He's going to suspend your sentence. I'd been uh, during some of the time I'd been in prison or been in jail. Uh, when they had picked me up on this charge, I was doing lysergic acid, and I remember thinking, because I'd been drinking so much, they had asked me, "Would you please consider being wired?" And uh, I remember thinking, if only I could see who was talking to me, I might be able to 
make a better decision about this important contract I'm reaching with the government. But I, I wasn't going to do that, and I think I knew that. You know, you got a code when you're living like I was living. But they believed that I might, and they allowed me to return to Auburn because I was supposed to have a meeting and do this wire-up deal, and I left town. Okay, so I thought that was a good idea. <laughs> and uh, I moved in with a couple of guys who lived out in the woods, and we were out in a uh, cabin. And the reason I'm telling you this story is my father paid people, uh, drove to Auburn, drove through the countryside, paid people to find me. So this is before the trial happened, because now I was a fugitive. And he uh, found me in the middle of the woods in a cabin with guys that drank like me where I was bleeding from different orifices, very sick. And my father came to the door with a gun. My brother had a gun. And they both came to the door, and they said, we don't want any trouble. We're just looking for my, my daughter. He said, uh, she uh, needs to turn herself in. And uh, if you'll just let me leave with her, there won't be any trouble. But both of us are armed. And, of course, these guys who were my, you know, my my. You know, who I was in union with, said, here, you can have her. <laughs> so so this is all pre-trial. I ended up in a mental hospital. You, some of you have been in mental hospitals, I'm sure. Tony, for, Tony, for example. Uh, and you know when you're in there, and that's not to diminish anybody who has a, a mental dis disease or defect. You know, our book talks to that exactly. But but what, what happened to me was I knew I didn't want to drop my anchor up there, okay? I made the moccasins. I did the tanning work. It's, if you're a tanner, beautiful craft. I don't have any talent for it, okay? <laughs> but I knew I didn't want to drop my anchor there. So those are all the precursors to me going to this trial. I get the sentence, they give me a suspension. I'm to live in, in living, supervised living quarters, and I'm going to Iowa. Don't even know where it is. I'm in handcuffs. I'm leaving. My father says, I love you. Do not ever come back to our home. Don't call your mother. Don't call your grandmother. Don't call your brothers. And don't call your great auntie. Because all three of those women might still have had a little bit of sympathy for a girl like me. My daddy got me. He got it. He told the pawnbroker, don't negotiate anything Edith brings in. He told the banker, Edith is stealing from my company. Do not negotiate any checks that she brings in. And when I'd be gone all night back there in Alabama, and I had that uh, Bonneville, my daddy'd send the guys that worked for him with a uh, uh, because he had some gas stations. And they'd just take my car. And I'd walk out after two or three days laid up, and my car would be gone. My daddy got it. And I didn't see my family for years after that. And I was in Iowa in a halfway house in a, in a supervised living quarters. And, uh, and as might be predicted, I didn't have any investment in Alcoholics Anonymous, although I was exposed to it. And I started drinking again, and the same thing happened. I started ending up in hotels with people I didn't know. I started getting arrested. And fortunately then, the NCIS uh, reciprocal 
programs weren't as savvy as they are now. So people didn't understand that I was on paper back in Alabama. Uh, but uh, I ended up in Omaha, Nebraska, because I moved here because a guy gave me a job and he was a drunk like me. And I had a terrible car accident again. And there I was uh, in, in the hospital. They'd taken my blood. The uh, guys, the EMTs, had come and gotten me out of the car. And uh, I was in front of a judge when I finally could walk. And I was going back to jail. And that's the way I lived. Finally, uh, I'm, I'm in the jail, and a guy comes up to me and starts talking to me about house arrest and Alcoholics Anonymous. I go to see my officer who's uh, uh, on my probation team. She starts talking about Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm not that interested in Alcoholics Anonymous because it looks like y'all got some serious responsibility, okay? And I'm not for responsibility. But, I, but I'm, I'm listening. The other thing that was happening to me at this exact time is I was very sick. And I was sick to the point where um, I could not, my, I was having a, a real deficit with swallowing. I didn't have any insurance, surprise. And I was just barely employable. And I was up at the University of Nebraska Medical Hospital on Grace. And a guy, the, the, uh, the treating physician comes out and he said, I've read the records that you have. And he said, without any frothy emotional appeal, you're an alcoholic. He said, uh, you can't drink. And if you're going to keep drinking, I don't think I can be of service to you. And that's how simple and forthright the message was. And at that moment, June 1st, 1987, the intersection of Edith being absolutely desperate and the opportunity of a lifetime came together right there. For some reason, I knew that man was telling me the truth. And I'm telling you, I'd heard it from lawyers. I'd heard it from judges. I'd heard it from priests. I'd heard it from psychiatrists. That guy, I was buying what he was selling. The only thing that my parents had not done was hire an exorcist. Because they had, my daddy had some resources. <laughs> And uh, and so I, I slowly, fearfully went to the 48th Street Club, a big clubhouse where where uh, where David and Kenny and I live. And uh, and a gal calls me out. I go late to the meetings. I don't talk, and I leave early. You know those kind of people. Okay, have you been one of those kind of people? Yeah, yeah. So I. I am absolutely um, in fear. I don't, I don't know any of you. I'm living in a town. I don't know anybody. I'm in supervised living quarters. I don't want to be a part of a new community. But I'm desperate, and I'm willing to roll those dice and take that risk. And so a woman calls me out and says, Ethel, come on up to the front. <laughs> and I said, my name's not Ethel. Okay? But anyway, I, I walk up there, and I said, you know, I think I'm an alcoholic. My name's Edith. That told you about me. When we're talking about the language of the heart, that's what we're talking about. There's a cord that runs from me to you, and we don't even have to speak about it. Alcoholics are usually empathetic. 
And of course, the counter to that is we're totally self-absorbed. So that's where I started my road to sobriety. That woman became my sponsor. I worked the steps with her. Um, Albeit the fifth step, I was a little late. And uh, she called me and called me, and finally I showed up because I didn't really want to get undressed. You know, I've had to get undressed a few other times, and I'm not talking about in uh, in any kind of uh, forum except Alcoholics Anonymous. Not too long ago, I was at a uh, an event, and there were it was a a graduation ceremony, and there were three former employees of mine. All of them had left me. You know why? Because I was dictatorial. I was dictatorial and a and a very hard boss. And so two years ago, I'm at a bar event, and this guy's talking about having him come in, and he'll do surveillance on you and look at your practice and try to help you reform it. And uh, he did a free raffle, and he pulled me out of the raffle hat. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, I don't think so. Well, you know what? I call that guy. And two years ago, he's flying in from Florida, and I'm thinking, oh, what a mistake. The reason I'm telling you this story is I paid this guy to come in and get and undress me, okay, so to speak. And he looked, talked to my partners. He talked to every one of our employees. He followed me around for a day. He observed my practices. I was scared to death. But I had to make a different course of action. I had to take a different course of action in my business. Because I, I love my job. It's a privilege to have my job. But I had to take a different course of action, and I had to be willing to be transparent to the sky. And I can tell you now that those things have changed dramatically that I have a staff that I think would tell you today if you interviewed them that they're happy to come to work, that it is a place that they will continue to be a part of, that we're in community, that my OCDism has diminished. But that's what I'm talking about here. The steps keep us transparent, and that is why they're so important, because we have to tell somebody else who we are, and then they know us without any of the image management that we always want to put forward. As time passed, I wanted to go to professional school. I thought about it not very long. I went to the test and did all right. I was still working in a bar, although I was sober. The only people that would let me into law school were the Jesuits because they're about second chances. And we happen to live in a city where there's a Jesuit law school. I'll be forever grateful to them. When I graduated from law school, they told me I could not sit for the bar exam because of my criminal history. So I went home and told God a few things that I won't repeat here because I dropped about $75,000 on this education and spent three years at it. And I was throwing rocks at God, and I can tell you, they they were more like missile launchers, okay? And my sponsor, who I finally called, said, Is there... Is there an appeal? Is there an appeal process? Oh, maybe. I'd been to law school, but I never thought of that. (laughs) I asked for them to appeal that decision, and they did. 
they reversed it. And at the same time that I was asking for that appellate decision, I was going in front of the Board of Pardons and Paroles in Alabama and asking them if they would uh, pardon me for my felonious conduct that I'd been convicted of in the, in the uh, 80s. And they did. I was granted a pardon. Now, I don't have that pardon up at my law office, but I'm... <laughs> I wanted to be in community with my county, with my state, with my country. I wanted to have my voting rights. I wanted to be a citizen. So these are the things that happen in Alcoholics Anonymous. If you'll take the first step, the journey of a million miles starts with it, and there'll be a lot of people behind you backing you up. I can guarantee it. The other thing I wanted to tell you about was uh, my father. You know, my father was became my best friend as time passed. And he was a uh, uh, a man who, as I said, uh, was drinking every day, but but had a very productive life. And while he was uh, growing sicker, I started returning back to Alabama, and I would spend ten days in Alabama and four days back in Omaha. And uh, it was a great privilege to oversee my daddy. So I'd sleep by him. He was on dialysis. He was uh, having chest x-rays. His health was failing. I was his durable power of attorney for medical care. And I had some issues with my brothers who happened to be and had different opinions. Um, and my brothers have a different religious practice than I do. And when we finally moved my father back to his home, um, uh, I was, you know, I had a feeding tube. I had the morphine. I would sleep by him every night and stay with him during the day. But my brothers came over and they said, you know, the way things are going, your, your salvation uh, is absolutely a, a, a failed conclusion, and so's daddy's. And I'm telling you this story because I was just about to get in a fist fight with my brothers at 25 years of sobriety in the backyard of the home that I'd grown up in that my father had grown up in. And you know what came to me? Everything that you had taught me. And uh, I started considering, I am my father's eyes. I am my father's voice. I am my father's ears. Because my father had forgiven me absolutely and completely for everything that I had done. Every time I came to visit my old man, he would welcome me with open arms. Every time I left to get on a plane to return to Omaha, you know what my father said to me? I love you so much, I'll never be able to tell you how much I love you. And I knew that my father had been about the business of absolute forgiveness and that my brothers, who were not in concert with me, I had to forgive. Because if we're going to be about the business of forgiveness, we better be acting on it ourselves. And I didn't end up in a fight with my brothers, and I listened to their uh, claims, and I didn't give them much a time. <laughs> but I went back in and took care of my father, and went at his funeral we stood in, in uh, together. We stood in unity together. Now, I can't tell you that we've had a lot of unity since, and people who know me well, would, uh, there's been a lot of hardship. But what I keep doing is, is uh, trying to be of service, and I... And I let my brothers know that I love them. And one of them has recently quit drinking. And I'll tell you what, had I acted the way 
that I want to act, which is in a hillbilly fashion. <laughs> That's what he would have known about Alcoholics Anonymous. You may be the only big book that someone ever sees. So remember that in every action. You know, I was talking at my, one of my, my home group is the Mayflower, and if you're in Omaha, come and see us. Monday night, 7.30. But I was talking at my Saturday morning meeting, and we were talking about how, how things snap. And when you've got that third step, you got that elongation between the thought and the action, don't you? And I can remember early in sobriety, a guy right on my, right on my tail, right on my tail, you know, at the edge of my car, and me jumping out of my car, telling him to get out of the car like I was going to fight him. Today, what happens? Let him go by. You know, it's not worth it. It's not that important to me. I'm not that important. What was the status of their day-to-day? Maybe their mother had died and they were in an emergency to get somewhere. I don't know, but I consider it today. That's the difference. Uh, so what, what I want to close with is when we're talking about Alcoholics Anonymous, again, we're talking about something that is so big that none of us can understand, I, I don't believe, the God that oversees us all. And as was said so well by Ed today, Alcoholics Anonymous has made me whole. One of my favorite things is Sunday at noon, I have a book study, and the gals I sponsor and a bunch of other scrappy gals come over. My neighbors are always like, you have so many curious visitors who come over to your house. On Easter and Thanksgiving, we have an open house, so there'll be three guys out there smoking at like 6 a.m. because they got dropped off from the Siena Francis house. <laughs> As David knows, one of them's in jail right now, so he won't be there. But, uh, but, uh, but the God of my understanding, who the Lakotas taught me about, because I didn't know how to be quiet, so I started going to sweat lodge early in sobriety, and the, the Lakota taught me how to be still and know that I'm not God. And how to be in community with people in silence. And that was a great practice and a great beginning. And uh, I still have my Lakota friends back in Omaha, um, and they still run the sweat lodge, which I'm grateful to have been affiliated with. But one of the things we do on Sundays is we read literature, and we've been doing it for four years and my favorite, my favorite book is A New Pair of Glasses. So I want to close with this from Chuck Chamberlain. And he says this, and I'd say it to you. I love you. It's none of my business what you think of me. It's my business what I think of you, and I love you. Now, if you happen to love me back, that's a plus. So you can add to my life, but you cannot take away from it. Did you hear what I'm saying? This is one of the greatest things that have ever been told of. You can add to my life, but you can't take away. And everybody that lives can add to my life, but they can't take away. Because I'm not trading with you, I love you, period. First, because you're a drunk. And second, because I know who you are, whether you do or not. You're a child of God, every one of you, and for that reason, I love you. Thank you for your consideration, God. 
Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.